Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. Hi, Laura. This is Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist. How are you tonight? I'm great. How are you? I'm pretty good. You'd, I, you're not going to be able to challenge my loyalty to this show anymore because IU is playing Purdue as we speak. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and you you didn't call in sick. Uh, well, luckily for you, it starts at the same time the show starts, so I should be able to watch the second half, which is really where you make it or break it. So, isn't that the truth? Yeah, we had a UK played uh, Florida earlier today. I don't know if you watched that game. Probably not. I saw bits and pieces of it. Yeah, it was it was a good game. I was talking to Johnny uh, at the end of that game and saying, next week during the show, either UK will have just played for the SEC championship or they'll be about to play for the SEC championship, and then it will be the selection show for the NCAA tournament. So we'll just have to look at the old schedule here in March and yeah. decide what we're going to do between UK and IU basketball. I call if it's a tournament game and IU's playing, we might have to reschedule. Now, I've been really good through the season, but those are big games. Those are big, yeah. So we'll just have to see. We may have some switching around of times here. Yeah. Okay, today I'm, is I fun- fear it might be more for UK than IU, actually. So <laughs> my well, I hope it's for UK. It will be, I'm sure. I hope it's UK's year. All right, it is Sunday, February 4th. I do want to mention that we had terrible tornadoes in our area on Friday. And, Kate, we both have worked in southern Indiana where there were just so many heartbreaking stories in the little town of Henryville and Marysville. Did you ever see clients there? Sure did. Me too, and in Pekin and Borden, and so just devastating tornadoes in our area, and our our hearts and prayers go out to those families, and um, some of those kids that I remember seeing when I was really working in southern Indiana are probably now 10 or 12, and so they're older, but I just, my heart just broke watching that coverage and hearing the coverage of the especially the toddlers, or, and um, there's a baby who was found like 10 miles from her home in a field all by herself, and the rest of her family, um, she was the only survivor in her family, and oh, total heartbreak, and then she Wait, died today. She died, you, yeah, I heard yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so total heartbreak, and we are certainly thinking about our our friends and the, the sweet, sweet families that we've worked with over the years in that area. Um, you don't see any kids, in, you haven't seen kids in Indiana in a long time either, have you? No, not I haven't done years. that. Yeah, me either, but I certainly, um, again, my heartfelt sympathies go out to them because I know that that's just life-changing and life-altering, so I wanted to mention that. Yeah, they really got hit, and we got lucky and skipped. We did. It went north of Louisville and south of Louisville, so... Mm-hmm. But we are really um, keeping those communities, again, um, in our prayers. All right. The next thing I wanted to mention is uh, on Facebook, on TeachMeToTalk.com's page, I've switched that to that new timeline format. 
And I love the picture that I used for the cover there. It's also the picture uh, that's going to be on the cover of the new book that we're going to talk about a lot tonight. But the main reason I love that picture is because that little boy is looking right at me and right at my silly eyes, as my children call those eyes, as I'm blowing. It's a picture of me blowing at the balloon. Have you seen that picture of me? I don't think so. You'll have to flip on there the next time you're on the uh, on your laptop and look at that. And I am blowing up a balloon, and when I blow up, up a balloon, I always make my eyes, you know, really wild and weird and funny and something for kids to look at. So this little boy, who, again, it, I love this kiddo, but it is a great representation for him of eye contact and joy and attention. And so I guess unless you have worked with that child and know what a huge thing that picture is, so I wanted to mention that because it's a oh, good wait, example. It's on Facebook? It's on, on uh, yeah, you can see it there. Okay. But I just, every time I look at it, I'd go, oh, we worked so hard to get that kind of great connection there with him just looking at me like, what are you doing? I mean, he's not looking at me like that, but he's looking at me, and that's huge, <laughs> so I wanted to mention that. And if any of our listeners have not, liked that page on Facebook, please do that because that's a great way to get updates about things that are going on. I believe so I, I recognize to mention, that little fellow. <laughs> I believe you do know him. He's one of your little friends too, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He's looking at you like, you're weird, Laura. But like, give me that balloon. <laughs> I think he's looking in my eyes like, boy, that's not how they normally look. I thought it was cute. It's to know this whole situation and... That's definitely eye contact, don't you think? So I think it is. I love that picture. So I wanted to mention that. Therapy tip of the week, I put that up on Friday, I think. This week's segment was about all the fun ball toys that I've been using, and some of them we've talked about. Kate, I used your verbal routine on there with the sphere ball that you love, and then I've recently reacquired so that's on there that's a cute one i don't know if you've had a chance to watch that yet or not but i've gotten several emails and um a comment or two on the website and a comment or two on facebook and so i I like therapy tip of the week that's turning out to be a real fun feature and i think therapists and moms are getting good ideas from that so this week it's about balls Next week, I think that's the one that I'm finally, I've been talking about that poor washing machine toy. I think that one goes up next week, so we'll finally maybe get that one done. I feel like I've talked about that for a month or two now, so there you go. Yeah, and I've been waiting for mine just as long, (laughs) so there you go. (laughs) You're just going to have to stand on the side of Interstate 64 and let me throw that to you sometimes (laughs) I'm driving through. Okay. I can do that. I never quite make it over to Anchorage, do I? So I yeah. need to do that. Um, all right. So I wanted to mention that. So if you are um, enjoying those therapy tip of the weeks, I hope that you'll drop me a line of, uh, about that. Um, the next thing I wanted to mention is we got a really cute email this week from Maggie. And she says, and Kate, I sent this to you, too, when we both chuckled about this. She says, I'm a pediatric SLP with early intervention. She worked 30-plus years as a speech pathologist in Maryland. She doubts she's ever going to retire, and she says she loves her work, loves the website, the DVDs, the podcast, and she says she feels like she's truly ramped up her game. And the cutest thing she said is that she walks on the trail near her home, 
and she listens to us on her iPhone for the podcast. So, Maggie, this is for you. Thank you so much for that cute email. And Kate and I just really got a good visual of you walking on your trails and coming up with new ideas for kids that you see on your caseload. So I wanted to give you a big shout-out. Double time, yeah. Walk faster. Go, go, go. You can do it. <laughs> I think that's a. I think a lot of people listen as they exercise or walk or something, and I always think that's really cute when somebody tells me that. So I wanted to thank Maggie for sending me that email because that was really cute. She also asked about a conference schedule. I do not have that yet. We have tossed around some different ideas and things, but this is. I've got a lot of uh, half finished projects in the works and I would like to get a lot more of those done this year. So I don't I don't know about our conference schedule. I don't know how that's gonna look. So we will certainly keep that open for discussion, but wanted to mention that as well. Okay, Kate, do you have anything to talk about before we really get going with tonight's topic? I don't really know that I do. Nope. You know, I've just looked at the switchboard and I think we have a caller. I wonder if this is someone who wants to listen or someone who wants to Ask what a question? Decide they have to talk, so you can. <laughs> call. Hi there. Are you there? Hello. Guess they okay, just perhaps listen. they just want to listen. All right, so we will do that. Okay, tonight we are talking about building verbal imitation in toddlers, and this is. The topic for um, my new book that's supposed to be out later this month, hopefully. And we are talking about that tonight and walking through those steps. And, Kate, I've emailed you those charts that go with these eight levels of imitation or these eight skills that we target in children, and we start all the way back. And, again, the reason that I wrote this is because, so many times with so many children who are nonverbal, therapists and parents start with, let me get him to repeat a word or a phrase. And for so many of our little friends, that is not the place that we want to start with them. And when we're thinking about helping them learn to be verbal or helping them learn how to imitate words, for lots of our friends, it's that core skill of imitation that's completely absent from their repertoire. And so we have to teach them how to imitate and how to imitate through all of these little bitty baby steps all the way up to the point that they get uh, where they're really ready to imitate functional or real words. And so I've talked about this concept before on the show. We did a show about this. When did we do this show? Earlier in the summer, maybe? Last year, oh, early in the summer? The vaguest notion, Ms. Laura. It was in the past. <laughs> <laughs> in the past. That's all and, <laughs> and there's a page, if you've been to my conferences, there's a, I have one, uh, almost a page about this material in the conference handout. It's steps for building verbal imitation. But I've taken that information, I've expanded it, given lots and lots of examples, really written how-to instructions for eliciting these steps or levels or skills or whatever you want to call them. This is not brand new information. This is just how to do it. And this is how to take all that theory that really 
early interventionist, whether you be a speech-language pathologist or an educator, a developmental interventionist like Kate, you know this somewhere stored. Sometimes I, when I talk to a therapist or a mom, I think it's, it has to be somewhere. I guess it's in the deep recesses <laughs> that people might actually have that information, but they just don't know how to act on it or how to really... Um, really apply it and really use it. And so sometimes when we talk about this, I think a therapist might say, yeah, 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 that's what I already do. But if you look at how they really practiced and how they really take a kid who's nonverbal and walk him through the whole process, if they're jumping straight into having him imitate words and then are frustrated because there seems to be a lack of progress, then they haven't applied that theory, and they aren't working a child through a hierarchy and aren't leading him and giving those really in-between baby steps that kids need so that they can get to the point that they're really ready to verbally imitate. So I took the idea, have expanded it. It's about 125 pages, so again, not a long, long therapy manual, but just enough so that if you are really struggling with the kid, or if you're not quite sure, you know, am I addressing all of these in-between steps? Do I sometimes have a lack of progress with one child, or maybe, you know, if it's a mom, they're certainly seeking out information for their own child, or a therapist who works with a whole caseload of children at a time, you know, is there a way to make this process more efficient and more effective? And so I'm hoping that this will serve that purpose. Yeah, I guess, Laura, the only thing I'd say to that is the way you worded it, you said something, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along the lines that, that you want, we do, you don't want to start out there. And I think I would say to that is to clarify to people listening, thinking, well, why wouldn't you want to start out there? Well, we would all want to start out there, right. but I think your critical point of what you're saying is right. lots of the kids we see initially are not ready to start out they're there. Not, so. They're not developmentally ready, yeah. And so. so then when you start there with a kid that's not developmentally ready, what happens? Sometimes nothing. Yeah. <laughs> or weeks nothing. or months <laughs> of uh-huh. nothing. And so then a parent is frustrated you were as a as the adult you're frustrated because you think why isn't he catching on here why isn't he talking i'm doing kind of the same stuff that i have done with everybody but he's still not he's not responding and sometimes th- those kinds of that lack of response gets blamed on not on that the adult didn't really meet the child where he was developmentally it gets blamed on he's He's stubborn. He's just not, he's purposefully holding out on me. He doesn't want to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All of those reasons that we give for a kid not talking yet, other than he's not developmentally ready. And when I say that, I don't mean then that you just close your book and you say, "Well, mommy's not ready. Good luck to you. I'll see you in three months, and we'll see if he's more ready then." That's ridiculous. You've got to work a kid through the process and get him ready and do the in-between steps and look at the prerequisite or foundational skills and make sure that you are doing everything you can to support that coming in. And this process really is about 
expressive language or, you know, beginning speech skills. But it doesn't negate all of the other stuff that we talk about every single week here on the show with looking at a child's social skills and looking at where a kid is receptively. And I think I do a good job at the beginning of this book in the introduction of really talking about how important that is. And you can't really take a kid who's not developmentally ready and still apply this process. I mean, it's not magic. He still has to be there. A kid has to have mastered the things that are really have to come in before verbal language is expected and anticipated. And sometimes, though, adults do just start jumping right into the nonverbal toddler and they think, yeah, words are where we're going to start without taking into account all of the things that have to be in place first. So the book really talks about that. And, again, if you, this is the first time that you've listened to the show, that may be new information for you if you're a longtime listener or if you've read any of my other stuff or read any any articles from the website, you'll know how much Kate and I talk all the time about making sure first that you have that social connection going and then making sure that a child understands language so that he has something to talk about. <laughs> he has to know what words mean and be able to link meanings with with abstractions, which are words. Yeah, yeah, that stuff has to be in place. And then when a kid is there, this is the process to guide you from that point on so that a child, you walk a kid through the steps. And it's not, again, this isn't um, rocket science by any means, but at the same time, I think a lot of therapists, and moms won't know this information, but a lot of therapists kind of discount the importance of some of these in-between steps. And so I'm hoping that this is more of a roadmap so that you can walk a kid through this process and have something else to do in therapy other than scratch your head and go, I don't know what else to do here. And hopefully it will generate some additional ideas and some additional things to try. Some of these, you know, it's eight levels. And we'll talk about what those are in a minute. But sometimes you get to a point where you think a kid is really a step or two ahead of where he really is, and you need a place, kind of your backup place to. Where do I back up to? How do I, what do I do if I've missed some steps? Where do I go from there? How do I, how do I fix that? Where, what do I work on if, I'm, if we're obviously stuck and not able to move forward? So, again, I'm hoping that this fills in those gaps and will give uh, therapists and parents some other ideas and some other ways to work on these skills at home and to get a kid really developmentally ready to talk because that's that's the whole purpose. Well, Lauren, you alluded to this. I think so often when we try and hit the ground running working on words or talking, um, if the kid just isn't anywhere near there, it's sometimes painfully obvious that what we're doing isn't working, and right. um, it, it kind of self-sabotages the session because the kid really isn't anywhere near ready, so we've lost him from the get-go, and we're there doing our best tricks to get him to talk, and he's probably not even looking at us but running across the room, <laughs> right? you know, because <laughs> we haven't really met him where he is. We've started way too high. And right. had we gone in and started where the kid was or maybe just slightly above where the kid is, we're giving him some um, hope, some, you know, 
shot at doing what it is we're asking him to do as opposed right. to we're going to start talking. And right. he's nowhere near talking. Well, and I think that's what happens a lot, and that's why a lot of people get so frustrated with therapy is because you think, okay, my kid's been in, and I get this email a lot from parents on the website. They'll say, my child has been in speech therapy X number of months, but he's made very little progress. Right. And I think parents measure that purely based on how many words he's saying now versus how many words he's saying then. But if you really analyze that whole developmental sequence, first of all, he probably wasn't ready on day one of speech therapy to talk, or he probably would have gotten there by then, and the therapist Or at least might, had some measurable progress, right? Right. Yeah. And the therapist, in every one of these cases where the mom says there hasn't been very much progress, the therapist has probably not done as good a job as she should have with explaining where a kid really is developmentally, where all the things that have to happen first before a mom is going to be able to hear those first words. And that's really hard for a lot of us to do sometimes as therapists because we are, you know, you do want to see the glass half full. You are trying to work with the child's strengths. You are really pointing out things that he's doing, but a lot of times parents don't get that some of the things that you're doing really are that you've got to put that foundation in place that it, that it might be a long time before a child talks. And sometimes therapists just don't want to say that and don't really want to tell a mom, listen, that talking thing, that's a long-term goal for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there are lots of things that are going to have to happen before you are really going to hear him talk. And for some kids on our caseloads, talking may not be a reality for well past when they would be off our caseloads. And that's just because of the nature of the child's involvement with, you know, the hand he was dealt. It's it's not that anybody can, for for our most significantly impacted friends, sometimes they may not be verbal forever <laughs> talking may not be realistic for them and i hate when <clears throat> when a mom doesn't know that and when she and sometimes again it's not that the therapist hasn't told her it's just that she's not really ready to hear that i got an email from a mom like that this week that she oh gosh it's probably if it were printed out it would have been maybe two pages of background information on her child and all of the issues that were going on and all of the multiple medical challenges the child has had and, you know, just, again, so many factors that have gone into. And she said, when do you think my child will talk? Well, first of all, I don't, I haven't seen this kid, but just from reading all of that information, I said to mom, has anybody ever said that talking is, a real, is really a realistic outcome? And I don't think she had ever really realized that. And, again, you don't know if somebody's never told her that or if she just couldn't hear it. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of getting off subject because I'm not really supposed to talk about kids who aren't ever going to talk. We're talking about how we're going to get kids to there. <laughs> but my point about this is you've got to be really, really clear as a therapist when you're talking with parents about, you know, and you don't have a crystal ball. You can't really 
for a lot of kids, you can't predict how long the process will take. But for a lot of kids, we know, okay, this is not something that's going to happen in the next few weeks because we have lots of ground to cover developmentally. And sometimes we don't do a good enough job of talking about that with parents. Wouldn't you agree with that? Absolutely. And heaven knows I've been guilty many times over the years of not, well, frankly, I think I am um, better educated thanks to you and your work about what all does uh, precipitate communicate verbal communication, uh, what skills need to be pretty secure before you can even think that their kid's going to talk. Right. Um, and I, thanks to the podcast, like it or not, I've gotten a little bit more comfortable about <laughs> discussing it. Force you it's into just, it. Yeah. It still doesn't make it easy when you're talking right. to a mom about her real-life child and you're having right. to say, really, there's a lot that needs to um, come in or develop or progress before it's even realistic to think about talking. Right. You know, no mom wants to hear that, and, and right. I totally get that. And I think it needs to be said tactfully, but I do think it's only right to really kind of share that from the get-go the most important thing is not only does it alter her short-term expectations, but it helps to refocus her her um, priorities. And she, yeah. you know, if you can deliver that message effectively, she begins to realize, you mean he really has to want to play with me? Yes. You mean he really has to follow some of these uh, play skills, you know, imitate some of what I'm doing? Yes. You mean he has to use some simple gestures? Yes, you mean all these things. And I think once they really buy into that, they stop trying to somehow magically get their kids to talk and begin to focus on all those prerequisite things that really have to happen. So it's you know it's not only the right thing to do, it it really helps the parents kind of refocus um, their attention on the things that the kid does have a short-term, um, that does have... What am I trying to say? Those things that the the child may acquire or master in the short term, and then they get some successes, which is great, and more importantly, they have the necessary skills. Once they have those skills, you know, those prerequisite skills in place, then they will become ready to be verbal communicators. But it's a hard, hard topic to discuss. With some parents, no, and other parents, you just feel like you're, putting daggers in their heart. And I hate doing it, but I do do it. And I do it way more now than I used to. Yeah, and even sometimes, sometimes you still are having those conversations, but they're just not ready to hear the information. This happened to me a couple years ago. I had a mom who was in school for another profession, and she was working toward that degree, another discipline, working to be a therapist. And she had a little boy who was really significantly um, delayed, had really severe motor issues, I mean, across the board, global delays. And one of the last conversations we had on the telephone, she's still saying to me, but how can I send him to preschool when he's not ready to talk? When is he going to talk? You know, and you just want to say, okay, this is the 900th time we've had this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> let's hit, re- you know, rewind, and let's hear what we said about this, all this. She couldn't hear it yet. She just yeah. couldn't hear it yet. And, again, that doesn't mean that you don't still present the information again with compassion and with, I mean, sometimes you have to be so 
blunt and so specific with that may not ever happen for him, but these are the things that we can do that will more than likely help him move closer to that goal. So, you know, again, we just have to keep presenting the information and doing it. But we're not really talking about that kind of kid. Tonight we're talking about a child who has, again, the foundation of being able to make a connection with a person. So there's some social reciprocity there. A child who, again, is beginning to assign some meaning to language. And what do I mean by that? I mean that he understands some words. You can say, where's daddy? And he looks or he runs to the door or he lets you know in no uncertain terms that he's understanding. Children who never respond to anything, like they do, they hardly respond to their names, they don't seem to understand any basic direction that you're giving them, like let's go take a bath, or do you want to eat? When you have children who aren't following those routines or understanding those things that you've said to them day after day after day after day after day, that's that's not their choice. That's not something they're purposefully choosing. I mean, those children truly have not learned to understand words yet. And cognitively, they're not really ready to talk yet. You've still got some foundational stuff you have to do. Um, and we're talking about children who are a little bit beyond that point, who we're really going to start to truly look at and truly think, okay, developmentally, he's right there. And that's going to be kids who are really have mastered even the cognitive prerequisites that, that tell us that he's learning how to think about his world uh, and make some little decisions, and by decisions I mean that simple problem solving. He's mastered object permanence and cause and effect and all of those things that typically come in when babies are between 6 and 12 months old. And then once they hit that 12-month developmental level across the board, that's when they're really more likely going to be ready to talk because they've gotten those underlying cognitive processes addressed. And I think some therapists really get that and really work with those. They understand that whole process, but a lot of times even therapists don't get that, and they're not seeing when a child is so significantly behind in so many areas that they that they don't recognize really that, that speech isn't ready to happen yet. So I want to be sure that we've... Again, I feel like that's something we talk about every week, but gosh, I see it every single, <laughs> I don't want to say every day, but a lot of days where people have missed that basic premise where a kid really isn't developmentally ready to use words yet. Okay, but we're going, let's start and just kind of go into what these levels are. Okay. Um, and go from there. Okay. Level one is, or step one, stage one, you're going to teach a kid, and again, this is how to move kids toward imitating words. We don't always look um, to start with words. This is where we're going to start at the very beginning, to see if we can have a kid learn how to imitate some actions with objects. Now, children who are good players, who have a wide um, interest in toys, and you would look at them playing with toys, and you would be able to watch them more uh, and see them really, really play 
more often than not, they've are they already know how to do this. They've already mastered how to imitate actions with objects. But sometimes you can even get fooled by a kid like this because he's really doing his own thing in play. And if you sat down to play with him, he's still pretty much in the room all by himself. Have you had kids like that, Kate, that you start looking at their play skills when you first get there, and you think, gosh, he's he's looking like this is, you know, he's going to kind of move along. And then you sit with them and you start to play with them and you realize that a lot of the things that they're doing are pretty repetitive or they're not really quite um, with you in play. They're still so isolated and um, aloof, and there's right. not very much joint attention going there. Um and so you really want to be sure that you're teaching a kid and that you're looking at how a child imitates actions with objects. And, again, let me kind of get back up. When kids are great players, they most of the time have already learned how to do this, how to imitate basic movements with play. If you'll think about it, if you take a baby, say, 9 or 10 months old, and he or she's never seen blocks before, and let's say they're playing with blocks, most of the time when a kid has not seen a new toy and they don't instinctively, aren't as cognitively driven as we would like to see, the things that they might do with the toys would be mouth them, throw them, visually explore them. But once a child is at this phase and can imitate actions with objects, mom might show that baby how to stack the blocks, and then what would the baby do? The baby would want to stack, too. And what's so important about that, once you see the baby start to imitate that, is she has that core skill. Imitation is being established. And we always, always, always see imitation skills begin with motor movements, not with verbalizations, and a lot of people don't really make that connection. I've got to get a drink. Kate, do you want to jump in here? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm quite sure what you want me to jump in with, but... Um... Actions with objects. It's We have to start there when we're looking at teaching a kid how to imitate. And as a DI, you would know that because you're going to already be looking at what a kid does cognitively and how he plays cognitively. And my point here is all that has to be in place first. If we have a kid who's still so socially isolated that he's not able to pay attention to another adult in play, he's not going to be imitating any actions with play. He's just going to be doing his own thing. And a lot of those kids, sometimes those kids do look like they're, you know, they're walking around the house. (laughs) They might be busy kids, but then when you stop, or their moms might say they play, but then when you stop and really, really, really look at what they're doing in play, they're not, there's no evidence of imitation there. Sometimes that that play looks stereotypic, meaning that they might spin things, they might open and close the door to the pretend kitchen, but they're not really, they might um, put the cups and the plates in and out of the little sink, but there's not really anything else going on beyond that. And, And when you're trying to play with a kid like that, there's very little, again, if evidence that he's imitating any higher level action that he's seen another person perform in play. And so sometimes we can get fooled by those kids because they do look busy, but unless you're really analyzing their play from a developmental perspective, there's not a lot going on. 
And I've had a fair number of kids. Funny you bring up the kitchen because I've had, a, well, over the years, a handful of kids whose parents would tell me when I, maybe at the initial meeting, and, you know, nowadays we don't assess them, so I usually try and ask a few questions to get some kind of idea for myself right. about what a kid's really doing. And I'll say, well, what does she like to play with? And they'll say, well, she really likes her kitchen. And I think, oh, that's great. Well, what does she do with it? Because when you hear kitchen, you're thinking she's doing pretend play already, right? right? Hey, that's right. great. Yeah. You know, she's baking birthday cakes and whatnot. Well, right. I've had a handful say, um, well, when you really ask, what does she do with it? They say, like, well, she really likes the spatula. You know, and uh-huh. <laughs> those kids have pretty much been on the spectrum, to be honest. And it's like, you mean just the spatula? Yeah. That's what they mean. It's like, oh, that's not necessarily what I was hoping to hear. But, you know, parents right? Will and so that's a parent that's who's gotten, yeah, she's gotten a little. She's she doesn't understand looking at play from a developmental perspective, and she doesn't know that her child should be taking the spatula to pretend like she's stirring, pretend like she's flipping some imaginary hamburger or something there to really put the spatula in the bowl or in the pan and do something with it other than hold it in front of her little face and look at it or swing it around in the air. Flip it around, yeah. Right yeah, and eyes, and yeah. again, unless you're pointing that out and unless you as a therapist aren't fooled by that behavior too, right. <laughs> you realize that she's got to take it to that next level. And so when you see a kid that's holding a spatula up like that and flipping it around and looking at it, what you should be doing if you're looking at her is seeing if she's going to imitate you do some things with that. So you would take a spoon or a spatula or something else, some other little tool, and you would model how to stir, how to flip, how to use that toy in some kind of way (laughs) that would be more functional. And your goal here at Level 1 is to see if she'll copy that action, see if she'll repeat you. When you have children that are still really not socially connected and kind of socially involved or socially uninvolved or or, or not engaged, they don't really pay too much attention to what you do. And so, you know, socially they're not there yet. They're not ready to kind of do this level one. Sometimes it's a motor thing. We have kids who are so, they're like my little boy, that I, the little client that I talked about earlier. He had severe motor impairments. If he picked up the spatula, he might only be able to hold it for a second or two or mouth it because he can't, motor-wise, he can't really do anything like stirring or flipping or use that little tool yet. From a cognitive perspective, my little guy that I was talking about couldn't do it either because he's not at that tool use level. And Month-wise, Kate, do you know where that falls on your test? I think that's like a 12- to 15-month skill, don't you? I do. Yeah, and so cognitively he's not there yet. And so when he's not really able to imitate that action, you can look at all of those factors. From a social perspective, he can't do it because he's not engaged enough with people. From a motor perspective, he can't do it because developmentally his muscles, muscle tone is an issue for him. He doesn't have control of his body yet. Cognitively, he's not there yet either because his brain hasn't gotten over the hump yet. He's just not at that 12- to 15-month developmental level yet, and that's why he's still mouthing 
and maybe looking at that, if if the little um, girl that I was, the fictional little girl that I'm using in that example, a little girl who might flick it in front of her face, she might have so many sensory issues going on that she's just really seeking out that visual stimulation. But cognitively, she's not at that 12 to 15 month developmental level yet if she can't use that spatula in a more functional way. Does that make sense? Certainly does to me. I'll say when I'm looking at this sort of thing, which I do all day, every day, um, I'm happy to see for a kid who's pretty clearly delayed on play that at least they're watching me, they're somewhat aware of what I'm doing. So that's the social part. Right. So, hey, they've noticed. You know what I mean? I've gotten their Mm -hmm. attention. That's, That's a point in my favor. And also that they're trying to make some effort to imitate it, even if it's right. a gross approximation, even sure. if they, it's really not that close, but I can say at least I disrupted the, what they were doing and they did make some effort to do what I was doing. Sometimes the, the approximations are pretty rough, but you can at least see, hey, she tried. And I think, right. okay, that means something right there, that she right. tried to do it, even if she For, didn't come all that yeah. close. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You're moving in the right direction. Right. So at this level, what are some other things that we would look at, other actions that we're going to be – and at the beginning you're just assessing this. You're saying can he or can or can he not do it yet. If he can't do it, then guess what? That's your therapy goal. That's goal <laughs> number one. He imitates actions with objects, and that's the whole premise of this approach or this hierarchy is you figure out where a kid, what a kid can and can't do. And then if they can't do it, that's your therapy goal. That's where you stay. That's where you work. Now, sometimes, and we'll talk about this in just a minute, you get a kid who who, does, who appears to be doing some of some skills or some actions or behaviors that it might be associated with a higher level, but there are so many things absent below it that you almost have to look at that like it's a splinter skill. And you really do have to get lots of examples and multiple episodes of the skills that we're going to talk about or the behaviors or actions or whatever noun you want to call it, coming in at these lower levels before they're really ready to move forward. And I certainly have had that happen with kids. And that's why I think this approach is going to be so good for a lot of therapists who don't know what to do with a kid like that because they're just tempted to move forward without really realizing they need to shore up all these weaknesses and they need to make all these skills really consistent so that these things aren't just – he's not just imitating actions with an object once every – Three sessions, you might get a good imitation with an with an object. You might be hearing some little echolalic words and think, gosh, we're going to go straight to words. But for a kid who's still not really imitating you with actions during play, that's what you need to be working on, not those higher-level things. Does that make sense? I think it does, Laura. Yeah. Yeah. And so what are some more examples of that? And there's a whole... I've listed in the book, uh, you'll get a chart for every level where you want to work with a kid of examples of real-life things of what you could do in play. Because some of us as therapists, 
aren't that creative and we need somebody to tell us, okay, if I have blocks, what are some things I can do <laughs> to see if he'll imitate me? And, of course, we think about stacking blocks. You could have a kid try to use stack the blocks and, and model knocking over the blocks and see if the kid will, you can stack it again and see if he'll try to knock over the blocks. If you're using a car, what would you do with that? Well, you're going to see if a kid would roll it or push it. Later on, you're going to see if a kid will do something more novel with that, like bang it on the table or hide it under his leg like you've just done. And you would be looking at that to see if he's truly imitating something that you're doing with an object versus he just did what comes naturally with the object. And that that's a really valuable skill, I think, to be able to really truly see if a kid's imitating versus what he would have done anyway had you not been there. Right. And don't you don't you find that that is such a telltale example of, of a kid's a true example of where a kid is with uh motor imitation. Is if they can do something unexpected. Right, that you've something just done. totally novel that you modeled that they would never have done unless they saw you do it. Right, and usually when a kid's going to do that, they laugh about it or smile or giggle or give you that look like, oh, I did it too. Yeah. And that, and you start to really know, oh, my gosh, his wheels are turning. He got that. Yeah. He knows. He gets this whole imitation thing, and imitation is so huge in development. And, again, it's overlooked I think by a lot of it's overlooked by a lot of parents because they don't know the importance of that, but it's overlooked by a lot of professionals too because sometimes we focus so hard on child-led and experiences and observing children without just jumping in and teaching them and showing them what to do. But until we know that a kid can really copy or really imitate, then he's 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 not developmentally ready to talk. But that we've got to back it way up to that action level. So level one, you're really going to be looking at how a kid imitates actions with objects. And boy, we got to start jumping through these levels, or we are not going to be finished with this. Are so you that's thinking we're getting one. through all these tonight? <laughs> Yes, we're going to get through all of these tonight. This is an overview. Okay. <laughs> so that's level one, where we where we work with the kids. And let's just say, and again, this theory or this approach really is not diagnosis-specific. It really is skill-based. And that's why we've talked about on the show before, you're not, we don't really treat a diagnosis. We don't really treat autism. We don't really treat Down syndrome. We don't really treat cerebral palsy. We're treating language with receptive and expressive language delays. We're treating cognition with looking at where kids' cognitive deficits are. We're looking at their social and interaction skills or their pragmatic skills. And so that's why this isn't, again, diagnosis-specific. But I will say, lots of our kids who are on the spectrum or who will go on to be diagnosed on the spectrum, we have to start working with them here way back at this level because if they are not socially tuned in enough with you to imitate actions, they're certainly not ready to get your words yet. And, I mean, I think that's almost by definition. Kids on the spectrum are not imitators to speak of from the get-go. Right. Yep. right. Of any of this. Whether they can do the actions or not doesn't right. mean they're going to imitate them. 
And that's what I meant. That's what I was trying to stumble around and say at the beginning is sometimes you kind of get in there with you think, oh, well, this kid has some, you know, we've got some play going here. But then you sit down beside them to play and there's no awareness that you're there. They're still going to kind of do their own thing. And so with Mm -hmm. those kids, you really do have to work on making that social connection. And so many kids on the spectrum really do respond to you playing with them at this level where you're not, you're not, requiring anything beyond an attempt to do what you've just done, which is an action with an object. And so this, in the book, I talk a lot about um, what's recommended by a lot of professionals is imitating what a kid has already done. But if you don't see that imitation shift so that he can eventually imitate you, you've still got a problem with connectedness and with engagement and with, again, getting that whole thing to shift. Because haven't you seen that, Kate, where you've maybe worked on a team with other therapists and they spend a whole lot of time imitating the other kid or imitating the kid, but the kid never quite makes the connection. Oh, I'm supposed to do that back to her. Right. And there's there's that turn-taking piece is missing. Well, and there so, is kind of a school of thought that really, really pushes, do what they do, do what they do, do what they do. They're going to notice and do what you do, but they never quite notice and do what you do <laughs> sometimes, and that, unless you're that, reinforcing right. it, unless you're targeting that, yeah. Right, and so what do you do with that? Then you, I take it back to that whole tell them, show them, help them thing, and again, here your target is you're getting them to imitate action. So you're going to model that action a couple of times, and then if he doesn't do it, you help him. You take his little hands and you, for lack of a better word, make him do it. Now, again, you're not going to do it in a real uh, mean-spirited, do-it-or-die buddy kind of way, but you are still establishing the expectation as imitate me, <laughs> you know, do what I do with this. And, again, at this point, you're really doing this pretty much, I mean, you're talking while you're doing it because I can't imagine as a speech-language pathologist me ever saying that you're truly going to ever be quiet. You're talking, but you're not so much giving the verbal directions. It really needs to be that they understand that they're imitating actions from you. And so if you were playing with uh, the Fisher-Price racetrack, and you were at level one with a kid and you wanted him to imitate actions with an object, your goal, first goal would be for him to push the lever to make the cars go down the racetrack. And if he didn't do that after a couple of models, you should take his hand and make him do it <laughs> so that he learns, okay, I'm imitating her while I do it. But beyond that, he learns how to play. And that's what we really need to be targeting with lots of our friends is helping them imitate those actions and imitate those real purposeful behaviors, one, so that they learn how to copy us because that's going to be our foundation for language. But the byproduct of that is they develop some play skills along the way. Yeah. Maybe maybe we should say help them do it. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm just having my – that's kind of my tongue-in-cheek. From tell him, show him, help him is from listen and obey one and two. But it isn't – help him is a nice way of saying. Uh, Provide full physical assistance. (laughs) Hand over hand, as our ocean friends like to say. Yeah. Yeah. You take their little hands and you help them do it. And, you know, most kids – Occasionally I'll run up against a kid who really bristles at that, but most kids, as long as you're selecting the right activities, that kids, you know, you go with our go-to, always loved 
activities and toys, and you're doing it in a really playful, oh, very animated way, most kids respond to it pretty well. Even kids who often bristle with lots of other people, you know, I mean, there is a technique to being able to do that and not push so many buttons that you've sent them into a total meltdown. So Right. It can be done. It's it can be done. And you easy, want to do, but it can be done. Yeah, yeah, and you want to do it with heightened effect so that they really have a reason to look at you. And that's like I was talking about earlier with my picture of my little guy that I've put as that cover picture on Facebook, on uh, Teach Me to Talk's Facebook page. I gave him a reason to look at my face. I did weird bug eyes as I'm blowing that balloon. He doesn't only notice the balloon. He's looking at me, too. And that's, again... You don't always do that by being the you know, loudest, most obnoxious person in the room. It's by your facial expressions and by your tone and by your physical proximity to him. You know, you're going to be right there with him in his little face. So he has no real alternative, I mean, other than they do always have an alternative to be able to walk away, but that you give them a reason to look at you and to be with you and to do and to do what you're doing in play. And so level one walks you through that with how to really teach a kid how to imitate actions with objects. Every chapter gives you really specific instructions for how to elicit those behaviors. And then I always do a troubleshooting section so that, okay, if it's not working, here's the reason why or some suggestions for why, and here are some things that you can do to make that a little easier. In there I address what to do if a kid seems resistant to your physical touch, and you just alluded to that. Sometimes we do have children who are a little bit tactile defensive, and so you might need some strategies to... um, overcome that. There's a little section in here about if you feel like this is just a behavioral thing, how I want you to really redirect how you're thinking about that and the whole power struggle piece. Power struggles are not fun for anyone, including the child. And so what you could do to address those things, sometimes with power struggles we make kids mad, sometimes we hurt their feelings, sometimes we push them into fight or flight where their only real response, again, is to kind of walk away because you haven't given them enough assistance to be able to be successful with what you're asking them to do. So it walks you through that whole process. So that's level one. What you want to see a kid do is imitate some actions with objects. Let's move on. The next level is imitating communicative gestures. And Kate, you alluded to this when you were kind of talking a few minutes ago. Gestures are really, really, really important Because they establish communicative intent, meaning I have something that I want you to know, that I want you to do for me, that whole intentional do something to get something piece. And again, it's a precursor to words. You hardly ever see a child in typical development who's learning to talk, who hasn't and doesn't use, who hasn't learned how to use and doesn't routinely use lots and lots of gestures. And the absence of gestures in a child who is not talking is significant because, again, it tells you that the intent is not there and that they're not learning to do, um, to use their little bodies in functional ways that let you know that they have a message to share with you. And on some level, they're beginning to show you an abstraction, meaning... (laughs) 
I can do one thing and you know that it means this. From a really functional perspective, let's talk about the number one gesture that lets a parent know what a kid wants is pointing. And how many of our little friends that are late talkers have difficulty with pointing? Lots. Well, I would say, <laughs> although I've never done a study on it, 75%. Yeah, lots and lots of kids who are late talkers don't point. And so they're telling you, I don't get that whole gestural thing. I don't get that whole, um, I can show you what I want. Now, sometimes you'll get a late talker who is great at this, and he knows he can't talk, so he has come up with an elaborate system of gestures to let his mother know exactly what those things, what he wants. And his mother may not have even introduced one sign or even known about sign language, but somehow her two-year-old has gotten that he can just raise his arm like this and his mom knows that he means that he wants, you know, his special red juice or whatever. And haven't you seen kids like that too, Kate, who've got, they're not ready to talk, but boy, they have gotten the whole gestural thing down. Yeah. Those are called yeah. apraxic kids. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I know I'm they not are. supposed to say that, but for those of you listening who don't know that, I'm going to share that little jewel with you. Yeah, you get one of those kids, you've got an apraxic kid, which yeah. is great. They, I mean, you know, that's yeah. a great skill, and it means they really do generally get communication. You've got a lot to work with on those kids, and they're generally exactly. good players. They're very imitative of your play stuff. They're social. They have all these strengths except for talking. And that gets missed a lot. It totally gets missed a lot. But you would know if you were looking at building verbal invitation in toddlers and using this to analyze and look at that kid's behaviors, you would know, oh, my gosh, he's already doing level two stuff all the time spontaneously because he's already using a lot of communicative gestures. Other things that would fall into this category, teaching a kid how to sign, and even before a kid learns how to sign, you would still look for other gestures that typically developing children are achieving, like pointing or even something as simple as clapping when he sees another person clap or reaching up to be picked up from his crib in the morning when mom says you want up or... um, We've already talked about pointing or blowing a kiss. What? Waving, I don't think he's waving. Waving, yeah. Waving or or participating in something like give me five. Anything where they use a gesture to do their part of the routine. And why is that important? Again, it's because they're moving toward I can do this one thing. I can use this one behavior to let you know that I mean something else. And that's all words are. I mean, that's all the whole abstract versus concrete. I started kind of talking about that a little bit a minute ago. When kids are concrete, when they're still working on object permanence and cause and effect and simple problem solving, what I mean by all that is if they haven't mastered looking at their world from that perspective, they're not ready to move to this level where they're using gestures and where they're using words because they haven't really established that foundational stuff. Um, and so we gestures really start to let you know that a kid is 
moving on up cognitively. And cognition is absolutely required for language. And I think a lot of speech pathologists were absent on that day in grad school. (laughs) And they're not really making that connection. When you have a kid who's not doing these things, he's not ready to talk yet. And so looking at a kid's gestures and then thinking, how can I teach him to use some of these things? A lot of times the therapist might not start with words with everyone. She might kind of start with signs with everyone, and then she's frustrated because for four or five months she works on the sign for more or the sign for go or the sign for car or please, and she gets nothing. And it's usually because the kid wasn't cognitively ready. Or he didn't have the social skills, or he didn't have the motor skills, all the prerequisite stuff that we've talked about until now. So until you see these prerequisites like clapping, like waving, like blowing a kiss, and copying some of these really early communicative gestures, he's not ready to sign, and he's certainly not ready to talk. So you have to, again, look at where kids are in this continuum. And at the very first level that you see a kid's not doing this kind of stuff, this is what you make your first therapy goal. Yeah, they really don't get the symbolic nature of language. If they're not doing any of those natural early right. gestures, they really don't get the symbolism of words. So they're not. Yeah, they're not ready. They're nope. simply not ready. And you've got to. What do you do with a kid that's not ready? You get them ready. <laughs> you back way up and you work on that cognitive stuff that we just talked about. Um, if you don't have a good understanding of that or you need some more ideas for that teach me to talk the therapy manual has a whole chapter on working on those prerequisite cognitive skills and that that's what your therapy would look like that's what your goals would be and you're telling mom look he's got to get this before he's going to be ready to talk he's not there yet this is what we're going to work on first so that we can make sure he's really building that foundation um, and moving forward. And you were right, Kate. There was no humanly way to get through all this in one night, was there? No, no. As Johnny giggles. <laughs> That's why it's a book, Laura. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, I was becomes, just hoping we could just do a little overview show, but I don't know yeah, why right. after three you start years. Talking and you realize you're not saying a lot of important things, and then it's like, yeah. okay, back up. Okay, say that. Yeah, this yeah. is a pretty, really... How do I? I don't know. It's pretty complex, and I think, like you said, it isn't necessarily something that's particularly well taught in any program. Right. Or it's glossed over in a day, and people fail to recognize that really how important it is. Right. Or you know, they've been school age therapists, and the kids they've seen for years have these things intact. And when you're talking about babies, zero to three. As often as not, these things aren't aren't um, uh, strong enough or even present. So right. they don't necessarily know that. Gee, you really got to start way back on these things before they're even halfway ready to talk. And, it's, and a lot of therapists really say, but I can't work on that because mom's goal is talking, and I can't work on it if it's not talking. Oh. Right. I just want to shake them when I hear them say that. (laughs) Some people are brave enough to raise their hands in the conference and say it or write it on the form, and I think, did you not listen the whole day? Well, and sometimes, Laura, at least in my experience, sometimes therapists will 
speech therapists I'm saying here specifically, they will say, I think maybe we should get a DI to see this kid for a while. And right. you know what? More power to them. If they're not comfortable addressing right. these things or they feel that their talents would be better spent on a kid who's a little further along developmentally and is possibly ready to talk, then they've done the right thing. I mean, I think I'm not saying it's not. Right. Don't 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 get oh, emails. I'm not. I'm book. I'm thinking. I mean, I'm totally agreeing with you. If they yes. don't know how to do the work themselves, or the they least just don't you could do, do it, it or whatever. Off. You know, right. they feel like yeah. I'm I'm more about teaching a kid to literally talk, and right. there are there are developmental therapists or developmental interventionists or whatever various states call us who do this all day, and we do. Um, I tend to be a pretty talky, talky DI, but <laughs> certainly DIs, this is kind of their mainstay a right. lot of times, and that and right. it's appropriate. And sometimes I'll get a referral here in Kentucky even, and it's a speech therapist saying, you know what, they may see this happens, and I'm seeing a kid right now where the kid was initially referred for for feeding issues, and the speech therapist came in, and address feeding issues, and then the mom was concerned about talking, and the therapist didn't really feel like it would be, I don't want to say, but I think I assumed or kind of got the vibe that maybe the therapist thought the child wasn't really quite ready to talk, but right. yes, there were some needs, so let's get a DI in here. Right. And um, there, I came in, and, you know, we've been doing lots of these prerequisite things, and thankfully the, the little boy's doing pretty well. and He's, even he's moving along because you're working on the he's, right stuff. Yes. Yeah, and, you know, Mom is great with reinforcing what I ask her to do, and he's made a lot of progress and doing really well, but I think she just felt like he's not really ready. He's still pretty little, and th- some of these things weren't intact enough, so... And so we deal with them. But, you know, a speech. here's all I'm trying to say is a speech therapist either needs to address these appropriately or refer on, as some of them do. And that's okay. That's that's, great. Right. So either way, somebody needs to be addressing these things appropriately because a kid just isn't going to talk if they're not able to pretty easily do these things. You know, maybe not in one hour, but... uh, over time, you should be able to elicit these things pretty easily. Right. And if you can't do it, if you're not getting it over three or four sessions, a lot of therapists say, he's bored, I'm going to move on. And really, you should go the other way with, oh, my gosh, he can't. He hasn't been able to do any of this in three hours, you know, three sessions, whatever. I need to change my approach a little bit and look at what I'm doing and back up even further and see where I can kind of meet this kid. But usually, more often than not, if you can't get these kinds of things going in several sessions, it's because there are some prerequisites that are missing. But a lot of people go straight to he's bored. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and you, you know, should I, be able to see these things pretty easily. I Yeah, because I think that part of... Typical development or development in general, even if it's somewhat atypical or delayed, kids, typically developing kids or kids who are developing typically or even if delayed, at least in a typical uh, order. It's just like, delay. It's not a disorder. It's just delayed, right. They like imitation. And right. it, they get this is kind of fun. 
And right. the, even if they won't do it and do it and do it and do it and do it, do it they'll do it a couple times. And right, you, and then you, you did it. Yeah. Right, and you know, okay, he did it, and then you bring out the next toy, and you do it with, you get him to imitate another really similar basic skill, and guess what? He imitates that a couple times, and then if he wants to move on with another toy, guess what? He's still able to imitate all of these basic actions that you would be doing with him, and then you you're confident that, okay, this skill is present, he gets imitation, he gets motor imitation. And then the next step would be, what will I do if I'm not stirring with this spoon that he would naturally expect me to do? Can he copy it in an, and use it in an unexpected way? And then if he does that, you know, oh, my gosh, he really, truly gets it. Now we're ready to move on. And so that's how having this written out, you really you really get in your own mind, you get a clearer picture of where that kid is functioning developmentally and you know that you've covered your bases and you've addressed that foundational skill from the very beginning where you want to get it. And you're right, mm-hmm. typically developing kids like it and they get they it like and they it. do it they're with toy after toy after toy. They're giggling, they're laughing, right. they think it's funny. You know, they, they're they into it. Maybe not, like I said, for extended periods if we're talking about the simplest of gestures, but they particularly like the novel weird stuff. You know, like, oh, my gosh, that's funny. Right. You know, they, you, they light yeah. up and you can tell. Exactly, exactly. All right, so we've talked about those first two levels. We're going to pick up with this next week and hopefully get a little further along with these levels, and um, that's where we'll... Pick it up next time. Do you have any parting words, Kate? I don't know that I do, except go Hoosiers. I think we're okay. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. All right. Until next week, thanks. Bye. Bye.